MSW Media. Thanks to Thrive Cosmetics for supporting the Daily Beans. Get luxury, high-performance cosmetics that highlight your best features. For every purchase, Thrive Cosmetics donates to help women thrive. Go to thrivecosmetics.com slash dailybeans for 15% off your first order. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, August 29th, 2022. Today, a judge unseals the redacted Mar-a-Lago search warrant affidavit. Several Fox News hosts are compelled to testify in the Dominion defamation lawsuit. Intelligence officials will evaluate potential national security risks posed by Donald's stolen classified documents. And a Trump appointee signals she's willing to approve Donald's request for a special master. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hello, everyone. Happy Monday. It's just another manic Monday. I wish it was Sunday, but it actually is Sunday when I'm recording this. So it's kind of a paradox with, you know, me and that song at this point in my life. But I wanted to tell you we have a great show for you today. We have a huge A block, lots of information. There is a bonus episode of Mueller She Wrote out yesterday, which you can listen to. And I go through the 2019 Bill Barr memo, which might have implications in the current investigations into the FAPOTUS, which is what the DOJ has decided to call him. And I have decided as well. Also, Democratic state senator from Maine, Chloe Maxman. We're going to talk to her about her short film, Rural Runners, and the companion book, Dirt Road Revival, How to Rebuild Rural Politics and Why Our Future Depends on It. And for the good news, I'm going to be joined by Dan Duncan. He is running for South Carolina House District 14 seat for the House of Representatives there. And we're going to go over the good news. And if you have any good news you want to submit this week, please do so at dailybeanspod.com. And click on contact. And uh, Dana will be back in a few days. I'm looking forward to that. I miss her face. But we have a lot of news to get to. So let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. First up, a judge unsealed a redacted version of the Mar-a-Lago search warrant affidavit Friday. That's that third part of a three-part search warrant where you normally have the cover sheet and then you have the inventory list of the stuff that they took, which in this case was signed by Christina Bob. On that day, she received them and then she, she said they didn't and they wanted it released, but uh, they had them. But then the DOJ released those two pieces. And then the judge said, well, let me see what the redactions would be like if you were going to submit a redacted version. And the DOJ did. And the judge agreed with all the redactions and they released it Friday. We learned that the boxes that the National Archives retrieved in January contained 184 classified documents, 67 confidential, 92 secret, and 25 top secret for a total of 184. Many of them were unfolded and mixed in with the, the shit you'd find at the bottom of my mom's purse. And this was just what they got in January. This is not what was recovered in June or in August. Okay. And these documents include HCS, FISA, ORCON, no foreign, and SI materials. And I'm going to tell you what those are. HCS stands for HUMINT. That's Human Intelligence Control System. Human Control System. That is a sensitive, compartmented information, SCI control system, designed to protect intelligence information from clandestine human sources, spies. Then FISA was in there, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, a dissemination control designed to protect intelligence information derived from the collection of information authorized under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, 
by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, known as the FISC. So the Carter Page FISA information could have been among the boxes retrieved in January. Then we have ORCON, O-R-C-O-N, which stands for Originator Controlled. And that marking indicates the dissemination beyond pre-approved U.S. entities requires originator approval. So if the CIA classified it, the CIA has to approve you disseminating it beyond pre-approved U.S. entities. Then there's NOFORN. That is N-O-F-O-R-N, not releasable to foreign nationals. That's information that may not be released in any form to foreign governments, foreign nationals, foreign organizations, or non-U.S. citizens without permission of the originator. So it's ORCON plus no foreign. And then SI stands for Special Intelligence. That is an SCI control system designed to protect technical and intelligence information derived from the monitoring of foreign communication signals, or SIGINT, signals intelligence, by other than the intended recipients. That's when we listen in on people's phone conversations with bad guys. And again, that's just what was in the boxes he gave back. Also included in this affidavit is a letter from Evan Corcoran pushing back on DOJ. And he was doing that by citing 18 U.S. Code 1924, which is the mishandling of classified information. But that wasn't used in the warrant. So womp womp. Excellent footnote there, by the way, explaining what I've been saying about why it wasn't used. So they go into detail about, you know, why 1924 wasn't used. And we also learned, remember how it was like, why did they call down and tell them to put a lock on it? Why didn't they just go down and get it? Well, we learned what that was about. I was confused about why they'd asked him to lock it. And that was part of an effort to preserve the evidence, not just to keep it safe, which was part of it, but to preserve it. And then they found people moving shit around after that on the surveillance. Perhaps it was after that order that that happened, and hence the 1519 citation, the obstruction citation. Also, Kash Patel is mentioned with regard to declassification being a moot point because we aren't looking at 18 U.S. Code 1924, but his name was not redacted and he wasn't referred to as individual one or anything like that, which a lot of experts are saying indicates that he might be targeted for indictment in this whole deal. Finally, there were Donald's handwritten notes on several of these classified documents, which is gross. I wonder if we'll ever find out what he's been scribbling on our national secrets. I doubt it. But let's talk about HCS. That's the human sources or HUMINT. And the Times reports that these sources risk imprisonment or death stealing the secrets of their own governments. Their identities are among the most closely protected information inside American intelligence and law enforcement agencies. Losing even one of them can set back American foreign intelligence operations for years. This reminds me of when Jared Kushner gave a list of traitors to the crown to MBS. Were any of those traitors informants for the United States government? That would be human intelligence. Maybe any Russians we've recruited over in the Kremlin sending us information. That would be human. What is he doing with those? He still hasn't told us why. Clandestine human sources, New York Times goes on to say, are the lifeblood of any espionage service. This helps explain the grave concern within American agencies that information from undercover sources was included in some of the classified documents removed from Mar-a-Lago, raising the prospect that the sources could be identified if the documents got into the wrong hands. We also know about reports that last year we saw a record number of our spies killed or missing. 
Nothing in the documents released on Friday describes the precise content of the documents or what risk their disclosure might carry for security, national security. But the court papers did outline the kinds of intelligence found in the secret material. I just went over them all. Mr. Trump and his defenders have claimed he declassified the material he took to Mar-a-Lago, but documents retrieved from him in January included those HCS documents, Human Intelligence Control System. Such documents have material that could possibly identify CIA informants, meaning a general sweeping declassification of them would have been, at best, misguided. You don't just declassify our names of our spies. Quote, HCS information is tightly controlled because disclosure could jeopardize the life of a human source. That's John B. Bellinger III, a former legal advisor to the National Security Council under G.W. Bush. It would be reckless to declassify any HCS document without checking with the agency that collected the information to ensure that there would be no damage if the information were disclosed. And that reminds me of the Orcon classification. It has to be declassified or you have to have permission to share it from the originator. And if it's the CIA, they're the originator. And if Haspel quit and resigned, who was giving the permission or not? I also remember Michael Ellis being put in charge over the general counsel at NSA. Of course, that didn't go very far. So what was that about? Goes on to say CIA espionage operations inside numerous hostile countries have been compromised in recent years when the governments of those countries have arrested, jailed and killed the agency's sources. That's what I was talking about a minute ago. And they bring it up. uh, The top secret memo sent to every CIA station around the world last year warned about the troubling numbers of informants being captured or killed. During the early part of the last decade, the Chinese government dismantled the CIA's network of sources within China, crippling the agency's spy operations in the country for years. Source networks in Iran and Pakistan have also been compromised, prompting the agency to ask its case officers and analysts to redouble the efforts to protect the identities of spies and informants. Every single source, if well-placed, can be of amazing importance to the spy agency. When one informant, critical to the intelligence assessment that President Vladimir Putin of Russia favored the election of Trump, had to be extracted and resettled in Virginia, the CIA was, for a time, left somewhat in the dark about senior levels of Kremlin decision-making. Remember that? An intelligence document marked HCS will contain details about the source of the information. Often such descriptions are very general, noting if a clandestine source has direct or secondary knowledge of the intelligence, but sometimes there are more direct descriptions to help policymakers properly assess the information, details, and such that could allow people reading the document to identify the source. That's a prime reason the spy agency seeks to tightly control HCS docs. And from Michael Stern at Just Security. He writes, the National Archives and Records Administration, NARA, and the former guy, Fapotis, are locked in a long-running dispute over records taken from the White House in January of 2021. According to NARA, in a May 2022 letter and more recent reporting, the agency went back and forth with Trump's lawyers about missing presidential records throughout the whole year of 2021 and well into 2022. In January of 2022, that's when Trump transferred those 15 boxes back to the National Archives, where they belonged. This is what we've been talking about, all of these HCS documents and whatnot. This is, these are the January boxes. It's an exchange that may now also be relevant to Trump asking a federal district court in Florida to appoint a special master to filter out documents subject to, quote, executive privilege. The May letter establishes a timeline showing how Trump and the National Archives have tussled over the documents 
and reveals the former president raised the possibility that executive privilege would block their review by law enforcement and intelligence agencies. But NARA rejected the executive privilege argument and shared the documents with the FBI. Below, Stern discusses the statutory and constitutional framework for assessing Trump's dispute with NARA regarding executive privilege and explain why, from a legal standpoint and constitutional standpoint, NARA was not only justified in denying his assertion of executive privilege, really had no choice in the matter. This is very important. Some of the documents in those boxes, the 15, were marked as top secret and included sensitive compartmented information, SCI, and special access programs, which are among the nation's most closely guarded secrets. Based on those classification levels, NARA informed the DOJ, which determined it should examine them for two reasons. One, to evaluate whether they contained evidence of criminal activity, and two, to assess potential damage to national security stemming from how the documents were stored at Mar-a-Lago before being returned to Washington. The White House counsel, acting on behalf of President Joe Biden, then made a formal request that NARA allow the FBI to inspect the contents of the boxes. On April 12, 2022, NARA provided Trump notice that it planned to provide access to the FBI and that could, it could do so just a few days later. The notice was not simply a courtesy, but a formal step required by the Presidential Records Act. Although the PRA, Presidential Records Act, declares the United States shall receive and retain complete ownership, possession, and control of presidential records, it does not provide all executive officials with unfettered access to such records. Instead, the PRA assigns the archivist of the United States, that's the head of NARA, the, quote, responsibility for the custody, control, and preservation of, and access to the records of each former president, and it establishes procedures pursuant to which NARA may provide access to others, including the incumbent president. So when they, you know, that wasn't just a formal step when they said, hey, we're going to let the FBI see this. It's part of the Presidential Records Act. Specifically, the PRA provides that Subject to any rights, defenses, privileges, which the United States or any agency or person may invoke, presidential records of a former president shall be made available to an incumbent president if such records contain information that is needed for the conduct of the current business of the incumbent president's office and that is not otherwise available. It further instructs the National Archives to issue regulations for providing notice to a former president when materials are to be made available pursuant to that provision. Under the applicable NARA regulations, the former president Trump is normally given 30 days notice, but NARA retains the discretion to adjust the period as appropriate. So they can do that. They can say, we're going to do this in a couple of days. Here, National Archives decided the urgency made it appropriate to shorten the initial notice period considerably. But upon request from Trump's representatives and with the acquiescence of the White House counsel, it extended that period for an additional 11 days until April 29th, 2022. At that point, Trump's team asked in writing for additional time to review the materials in the 15 boxes for the purpose of determining whether any document therein was subject to privilege and consulting with the former president so he could decide whether to assert a claim of constitutionally based privilege to block the FBI's access to the documents. Alternatively, they informed the National Archives it should consider their request to be a proactive assertion of executive privilege made by counsel for the former president. But in a May 10th letter, NARA denied that request, Trump we want more time. We want to look through this stuff and see if it's privileged. Nara said no. The agency pointed out that four weeks had already passed since it informed Trump of its intent to provide access to the FBI, implicitly suggesting that this was adequate time for review of the relatively limited quantity of material at issue. In any event, Nara noted there is no precedent for an assertion of executive privilege by a former president against an incumbent president 
to prevent the latter, Biden, from obtaining NARA presidential records belonging to the federal government where such records contain information that is needed for the conduct of current business. Emphasis in the original there. It expressed strong doubt that a former president could ever successfully assert claims of executive privilege against an executive branch agency authorized to obtain and access presidential records by the incumbent president. But it argued that in any event, the question in this case is not a close one. We've talked about that before, given that the FBI required access for both purposes of a criminal investigation and to make a damage assessment of potentially compromised classified materials. Accordingly, NARA denied both Trump's request for further extension of time and his, quote, protective assertion of executive privilege, unquote. Instead, it informed his lawyers the FBI would be permitted to access the boxes as early as May 12th, which presumably not coincidentally was exactly 30 days after NARA's initial notice of intent to provide access to the FBI. Now, from a legal and constitutional standpoint, um, Stern continues, NARA was not only justified in denying Trump's assertion of executive privilege, it really had no choice. To understand why this is so, it's helpful to break down the question into three questions. Number one, does a former president ever have the right to successfully assert executive privilege to prevent access to presidential records by the incumbent president or executive agencies acting under the incumbent's authority? Two, if such a right exists, could it be successfully exercised under current circumstances? And three, who decides the first two issues? So executive privilege by a former president. First, PRA makes clear that nothing in its provisions are to be interpreted as expanding or diminishing the former president's constitutional rights. Indeed, both the statutory language and legislative history make it clear Congress has been extremely skeptical of the notion that a former president can successfully assert executive privilege under any circumstances without the support of the current president. While the executive branch has taken a different view, that argument has never extended so far as to suggest the former president can just assert privilege in opposition to the incumbent much less that he can do so when the incumbent himself is seeking access to the presidential records for the purpose of carrying out the constitutional functions of the executive branch, which include criminal investigations and security threat assessments. For example, when in the 1980s, the Office of Legal Counsel issued a much-criticized opinion later rejected by the D.C. Circuit that an incumbent president should ordinarily defer to a former president's assertion of privilege with regard to the latter's presidential records, it nonetheless explained this principle must yield when it conflicts with the discharge of the incumbent's constitutional responsibilities. Thus, if the current president believes that the discharge of his duties, investigation and prosecution of crimes, for example, if he determines it demands the disclosure of documents claimed by the former president, it may be necessary for him to oppose a former president's claim. Similarly, the author of the opinion, Assistant Attorney General Charles Cooper, when summoned to defend it before Congress, explained that an incumbent president need not respect a former president's claim of privilege if the incumbent feels it would interfere with his ability to execute legal and constitutional responsibilities, as he or she alone understands and perceives them. Alone. It's not up to the courts what is necessary to carry out duties. It's up to the incumbent president. Whether the former president should have the unilateral power to assert executive privilege over the objection of the incumbent remains unsettled. The Supreme Court recently recognized in Trump v. Thompson. As I have pointed out, Stern says, this notion is in considerable tension with the Office of Legal Counsel's general approach to executive privilege. At least one member of SCOTUS, that's Kavanaugh, believes that a former president must be able to successfully invoke the presidential communications privilege for communications that occurred during his presidency, even if the current president does not support the claim. 
In Thompson, however, Kavanaugh was writing in the context of a congressional request from the January 6th committee, so separation of powers issues. The Congress wanted to access the records. It is by no means clear that he would maintain the same view where the incumbent president himself was seeking access to the records for purposes of carrying out his functions. Indeed, Kavanaugh, during his tenure at the White House Counsel's Office, famously defended a controversial executive order on presidential records issued by GW. That order made it difficult for the public, Congress, or the courts to access presidential records over the objection of a former president. However, the order explicitly provided that it did not address access by the incumbent president to those records. That's Kavanaugh himself. Now, in short, the notion that a former president can block his successor from accessing presidential records that the current president needs to carry out his job would be the most extreme manifestation of a doubtful legal theory and one that has no support in any legal authority to date. Next up, applying executive privilege to the Mar-a-Lago documents. Second, even if some circumstances might allow a former guy to block a current guy from accessing the former guy's records, that's not the case here. The Biden administration has identified two purposes for reviewing the boxes of material. The first, law enforcement, is precisely the type of core executive function that Cooper noted would justify disregarding the former president's claim of privilege. The second, conducting a damage assessment of classified materials that had been missing for over a year to determine remedial steps that need to be taken is even probably more compelling. Indeed, during the congressional hearings that led to the enactment of the PRA, one of the points supporters of the bill made was that the incumbent president needed to have access to the records of their predecessors for national security purposes. For example, some PRA proponents noted that during the Kennedy administration, some assurances were made to the French government during the Suez crisis that were only documented in records that former Eisenhower took with him when he left office, and which only he and his family could access. One witness cited this example as part of the insanity of the prior system and urged Congress, we cannot allow the most secret documents to be taken away every four years and treated like the personal property of a private citizen. That's the ex-president of the United States in this case. A new president should not be required to come hat in hand begging his predecessor to let him see vital documents relating to national security. So this is This has happened before. (laughs) Another witness, the former White House counsel to President Ford, explained that under the proposed legislation, no president can restrict a successor in office from getting continuous access to those records that they might need. Even if former President Trump has a colorable argument that the FBI does not really need access to these documents, and to Stern's knowledge, no such argument has been made, It seems highly unlikely that any court would substitute its judgment or the judgment of a politically unaccountable former president for that of the incumbent president in circumstances like these. As Nara noted in its letter, this does not appear to be a close question. That's what they were referring to. To be sure, it's possible that the 15 boxes of documents contain privileged documents which are not classified and which have no bearing on either the criminal investigation or the damage assessment. Had Trump's representatives reviewed the materials and identified such documents, they might have had a much stronger claim that executive privilege protected those specific documents or indeed failed to meet the statutory standard that they are needed for the conduct of the current business and not available elsewhere. But it appears that Trump's representatives did not conduct that review and no such documents have come to light. Thus, it's impossible to assess whether privilege protects any part of the 15 boxes. Finally, a court must decide a former president's privilege claim. 
Longstanding executive branch doctrine makes it clear that the archivist, as a subordinate executive branch official, has no authority to countermand the sitting president's decision on whether to honor a former president's executive privilege claim. Indeed, NARA regulations provide it cannot honor the former guy's invocation of privilege unless the incumbent president affirmatively decides to support it. That's the default. The only viable option for a former president to challenge an access request by a sitting president is to file a lawsuit in the United States District Court for the District of Columbia, not Florida, where he judge shopped to find this judge. And that's what the PRA vests with jurisdiction over any action initiated by the former president asserting the determination made by the archivist violates the former president's rights or privileges has to be in the District of Columbia court. However, Trump, who's hardly shy about filing legal actions to protect his rights, real or imagined, chose not to challenge the archivist's decision through the manner prescribed. This suggests, perhaps, that his true objections are more political than legal. If the federal court in Florida grants his application for an appointment of a special master, he will have the opportunity to make the case for applying executive privilege to a different set of documents, those seized by the FBI during its search of Mar-a-Lago but we'll face all the same obstacles. So that's all very, very important information. We are waiting for the Department of Justice to file its response to what the judge said. The judge is indicating that she'll probably allow, but she she hasn't decided, but she said she'll probably allow a special master, appointing a special master. But she didn't answer the jurisdictional question. I don't think she has it. I'm interested to see what the DOJ is about to file because Donald and his legal team tend to shoot themselves in the feet quite a bit. And had they not filed anything, DOJ wouldn't have an opportunity to respond. And giving them an opportunity to respond gives them a chance to, quote unquote, speak. As Merrick Garland has said multiple times, we only talk through our legal filings and indictments. That's it. This gives them an opportunity to talk. I personally think they'll ask for a change of venue. They'll bring up the Presidential Records Act jurisdictional problems. It has to be filed in D.C. court. They will uh, maybe put a privilege log of a more detailed information about what was taken on the August 8th search warrant execution. But they aren't going to hand over any classified documents. Certainly not. So we'll see what happens. And I've got a whole schadenfreude block for you today. So let's do that. Let's uh, let's have some tasty schadenfreude. schadenfreude. All right. First up, some of the biggest names at Fox News have been questioned or are scheduled to be questioned in the coming days by lawyers representing Dominion in its one point six billion dollar defamation suit. It's one point six billion with a B against the network as the election technology company presses ahead with a case that First Amendment scholars say is extraordinary in its scope and significance. Sean Hannity became the latest Fox star to be called for a deposition. According to a new filing in Delaware Superior Court, he's scheduled to appear Wednesday. Tucker Carlson is going to face questioning on Friday. Lou Dobbs, whose Fox business show was canceled last year, scheduled to appear on Tuesday. Others who have been deposed recently include Judge Box of Wine, Janine Pirro, Steve Ducey, that's the douchebag. Steve Ducey, he's the guy in the press room that keep, you know, 
keeps poking at Jen Psaki when, you know, when they were there, that that was him, that tall blonde guy. And now the new the new press secretary too, Corrine Jean-Pierre and a number of high level Fox producers also have been deposed or will be deposed. People with knowledge of the case who speak only anonymously said they expected the chief executive of Fox News Media, Suzanne Scott, could be one of the next deposed, along with the president of Fox News, Jay Wallace, Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch whose family owns Fox, could follow in the coming weeks. Hmm, Fun. That's fun for me. And, (laughs) this is so good, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office refused Trump's application to trademark Truth Social, the name of a social media company. A trademark lawyer in Washington surfaced the filing on Thursday. Truth Social and the SPAC, looking to take its parent company public, have faced enormous legal and technical challenges ever since the app was announced last October. By the way, the reason that they denied their patent application is because there's other social media sites called Truth Social. Here's some other stuff. Last week, Digital World Acquisition Group, that's DWAC, the blank check company that plans to merge with the parent company, looked to delay its earnings report. The week before it asked shareholders to approve an extension of its merger agreement by a year, it did that. True Social app missed its launch deadline, putting thousands of users on a wait list for weeks. That SPAC is under investigation by the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, for possibly negotiating their deal prior to DWAC going public, which is illegal. They're also under federal criminal investigation in the Southern District of New York. An investor sued the SPAC CEO last year, claiming fraud. And there's been confusion regarding whether or not certain members of the board are even still on the board. So that's just fun for me. All right. Up next, I'm going to talk with Chloe Maxman. You don't want to miss that about her Rural Runners movie. And then after that, I'll be joined by Dan Duncan for the good news. Stick around. We'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hello, it's AG. And I want to talk about Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E Cosmetics. They are amazing. They sell high-performance beauty and skincare products made with clean, skin-loving ingredients, No parabens, no sulfates, no phthalates. They're also 100% certified vegan and 100% certified cruelty-free. And that's so important to me. And the product is amazing. Okay, the Liquid Lash Extension Mascara is my favorite thing ever. It's got more than 20,000 five-star reviews. It's ultra-lengthening. It opens up your eyes and it lasts all day without clumping, smudging, or flaking. And it just comes off with some warm water. It doesn't run like a lot of mascaras do. It just kind of slides right off your lash. The tubing formula. It's amazing. Another favorite is their liquid balm lip treatment. That's a lip serum uh, that nourishes and restores dull, dehydrated lips. It gives your lips a smooth, full, glossy look. It replenishes moisture with a protective veil of skin-nourishing vitamins and juicy, juicy hydration. I use it every day. And one of the best things about Thrive Cosmetics is they're bigger than beauty, giving mission. For every product purchase, Thrive Cosmetics donates to help communities thrive. They have over 300 giving partners across the country, including the National Breast Cancer Foundation, which has supported women affected by breast cancer through early detection education and supportive services for nearly 30 years. And now is a great time to try Thrive Cosmetics for yourself, because right now you can get 15% off your first order. Um, This liquid lash mascara, you must, must try it. 15% off your first order when you visit thrivecosmetics.com slash dailybeans. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash Daily Beans for 15% off your first order. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm honored today to be speaking to a current Democratic state senator from Maine, 
with a new film out about her story, her inspiring story. The film is called Rural Runners, and there's a companion book called Dirt Road Revival, How to Rebuild Rural Politics and Why Our Future Depends on It. Please welcome Chloe Maxman. Chloe, hi. 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 I'm so excited to talk to you, and I'm so excited about this film being chosen, an official selection for the Mountain Film Festival 2022. Can you tell me a little bit about why you wanted to put together this book and film to tell this inspiring story? Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. So for the past four years, I've served in the Maine legislature and we've we've run in rural conservative districts here in Maine. And my campaign manager has been an amazing young man, Canyon Woodward. We decided to run to really dig into our, our rural communities and understand why people are being pulled so hard to the right. And what we found is that there's actually a lot of common ground and if we can take the time to focus on our values, we can we can find that. And it really changed our lives and how we think of ourselves as as organizers and progressives in this world. So we've been documenting it along the way and trying to extract lessons for rural organizing and we put them into the book. And then there's a short film about it as well. Yeah. And we're really talking about best practices here because there are so many folks in, in rural red areas progressives running for office and and you waged back-to-back successful campaigns in 2018 and 2020. I mean, you won your house district that had a 16-point Republican advantage. That's huge, a huge margin to overcome. And then you unseated the highest ranking Republican in Maine. Talk a little bit about why these rural elections are so important, one, and why state legislature elections are so important, especially as we're about to face a Supreme Court case called Moore v. Harper, which could throw the decision on what electors to choose to our state legislatures. Yes. So I think there's been a couple of really stark trends over the past decade or so. From In 2009, there was no partisan lean amongst rural voters. And in 2019, rural folks were voting Republican by 16 points. In that same time period, the Democrats lost almost 1,000 state legislative seats. And that calculus, which has been a huge mistake on the part of kind of the national democratic apparatus, has has really led to two things. One is that the rural vote has a huge amount of political power. Our electoral system here in the U.S. is really skewed to give rural voices a, a huge influence over our politics. So I think the best manifestation of this is Donald Trump getting elected in 2016 mainly with the rural vote behind him. The other consequence is that when Democrats are really focusing their energy on urban turnout, that means that they're kind of letting the rest of the state go. And they're really just kind of getting the same Democrats elected from the same district cycle after cycle. And it's opened up this huge, this huge floodgate for lots of Republicans to get elected to state legislatures. And we've seen State legislatures swing to the right, you know, in states like North Carolina, where Canyon's from, the impacts of that have been that the Republicans can redistrict, you know, and we've seen rampant gerrymandering across the country as a result of this. There have been so many Democratic candidates and organizers who have been on the ground in rural communities fighting against this trend for years and decades. But for the most part, we haven't seen the larger democratic institution follow suit. And so the consequences are really quite scary. Yeah, yeah, agreed. 
And I want to talk, I want to get down to a little bit of the brass tacks. Talk about a little bit about um, some of the grassroots organizing strategies that you were successful with and maybe share a little bit about the blueprint that you've come up with on, on how to flip these rural areas blue. So Canyon and I both have a background in, in organizing and being in social movements. And we kind of always noticed how social movement work has kind of been kept separate from electoral politics. I think we see that changing a little bit these days, but broadly speaking, it's a pretty stark trend. And so I hope you can't hear the rooster behind me, but if you can, then it's just having a great day. Well, hey, we're just driving home the point that this is rural America. Yeah, I'm here on the farm and the rooster's going crazy. (laughs) (laughs) So for, for Canyon and I, when we were running our campaigns, we really wanted to bring in so many of the aspects of social movement. So a huge part of that was just really prioritizing relationships and community, making our campaigns a fun, regenerative space that people wanted to be part of, make sure that everyone is valued and had a role and felt like their time was really effective. We also, you know, we weren't, we didn't really run an extractive campaign, which is how most campaigns are. We didn't show up to a voter's house and say, hey, you know, we're all about Chloe. This is what Chloe stands for. Are you voting for Chloe or not? We really flipped the script and we just said, hey, we're here with Chloe's campaign. What's on your mind and how can we best represent what's going on in your world? So it's really just focused on relationships and authenticity. There were a lot of different factors that went into us winning, but I think one of the one of the most central ones is that we really prioritize talking to conservative independents and Republicans, many of whom had never been contacted by a Democratic campaign or canvasser in their entire voting history. And we were able to talk to all of these people, you know, because of all of the folks that joined our, our campaigns, because we had this huge movement that really allowed us to, to expand who we were talking to. You know, we, we created our own canvassing universe, which is the list of people that, that you go knock, knock their door. And we didn't take that list from the state party. We made it ourselves so that we could really intentionally broaden our outreach, like a good social movement. Wow. And and I think that that really lends itself to the importance of listening, right, to constituents rather than sort of talking at them. And I think that there are so many candidates running in, in rural areas, Democratic and progressive candidates running in rural areas that can find these middle grounds by by doing that and, and by following your your roadmap. One other thing I wanted to ask you about specifically with best practices advice for other candidates running, because we we always encourage people to run for office, is avoiding burnout and self-care. Can you talk a little bit about how you address that in in this film and the companion book as well? Yeah, it's you know, it's something that we talk about in the film and the book. It was Canyon and I had both worked on campaigns before and as organizers, we both experienced burnout and then and been in context where, you know, the person wasn't taken care of as a whole entity. So something that we really try to prioritize, I, I think we're still learning lots of lessons on that front. It's so tricky, you know, especially in a campaign where you're zooming towards this one day that like defines the rest of your life. It's, it's really stressful and it's hard not to just prioritize that and let your, your own body and mind go. But 
you know, Canyon's Canyon's a professional runner, um, which is part of why we call the film Rural Runners. And, you know, he he just would take space and time to go on his long his long runs and really recenter and I try to take space to to be outside. But it's definitely a huge struggle and a still a huge growth point for us as we as we do this work. I don't I think we could learn more from others than we could teach. <laughs> And that you know that we need a giant like uh, some so some app that connects us with others so that we can discuss our best practices for self care because yeah. it, it you know and then the same goes for voters a lot of voters are very exhausted and and tired of every single election being the most important election of our lives which right. which they are and yeah and I think that uh, the community of listeners on our show here has really been instrumental in, you know, picking up the baton and carrying it while others rest for a while. And so I think that that's such an important lesson. And I'm so glad to have seen it in both of this film and the book. Now, you have some upcoming screening dates for this film, Rural Runners, which, again, is an official selection for the Mountain Film Festival of 2022. Can you talk a little bit about where those are and how people can can watch this movie? Yeah. So. That's a great question. I don't have all of that information in front of me. I'm sitting outside right now, but folks can see a trailer for the film and request request a screening and see what's going on through our Kinema page. We also have a the sizzle for the film and the link to the to the Kinema page on our website, which is dirtroadrevival.com. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you can also find out information at mountainfilm.org slash media slash rural hyphen runners. Absolutely. Uh, incredible short film, lots of screenings coming up and the companion book. So if you're thinking about running, if you're running or if you just need some personal life lessons about self-care and how to engage and listen with perhaps family members who might you might politically disagree with. I found this to be very, very informational in, in that particular area as well. So many of our listeners always write in and ask, how do I talk to my Republican family members? There's a lot in this book and this film about how to engage, right? Yeah, that's, you know, that was such a huge part of our campaigns was how do you have conversations with folks who you really disagree with? You know, how can you <laughs> find that space in yourself and in your relationship with that person to focus on values, agree to disagree and um, just understand where the other person is coming from. It's, it doesn't always work, of course. You know, sometimes there's too much vitriol or anger, or xenophobia or racism to, to engage with it. But what we found in, in our rural towns is that there is more space than we think to, to make some progress. Yeah. And to be fair, I've been to Maine and I've been to rural Maine. There, there's nothing nicer than a Mainer. Yeah. A Maine. Yeah. I absolutely love Maine as a state. And I think that that also is the case for wherever you live. People are just genuinely nice and, you know, want to talk. And, and we all have, can find common ground on some of these issues. So thank you so much for your time today. Again, the, the film is called Rural Runners, and the book is called Dirt Road Revival, How to Rebuild Rural Politics and Why Our Future Depends on It. So very true. Thanks for your time today, Chloe Maxman. Thank you so much for having me. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. 
Hey everyone, it's AG from Muller She Wrote and The Daily Bean. It's Mariah from How We Win. It's Stephanie Miller from The Stephanie Miller Show. Steve Pearson from The How We Win Podcast. Hi, it's Brett Micellis from The Midas Touch Podcast, and we are joining forces to support The How We Win Fund. The midterms are coming, and the best way that we can fight back against the Republicans is to support Democrats in key battleground races. Our democracy is under attack, but we don't agonize. We, we organize. organize. Together we can protect and expand our Democratic majority this November. Join the MSW Media Family Podcast and support the races that need us most by donating to Swing Left's National Impact Fund. It takes the guesswork out of where you'll have the most impact and 100% of the donations go directly to our most important races. So go to swingleft.org slash fundraise slash how we win. Donate what you can, share this with your friends and family. And let's show the GOP that the grassroots persistence is here to stay. This This is How We win. Win. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Who likes good news, everyone? Then good news, everyone. Good news, good news. And we have a very special edition of Flip It Blue Good News today, as I am uh, being assisted by the Democratic candidate for the South Carolina House of Representatives running in the 14th District. Please welcome Dan Duncan. Dan, hi. It's good to see you again. It's good to be back. I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to sub in for Dana. We miss her terribly, but hopefully I'll be able to fill her shoes a little bit. I think so. I think so. And uh, speaking of filling shoes, I think I want you to fill the shoes of the 14th South Carolina House Congressional District's representative. It's coming up this November. The election is almost here, my friend. But I wanted to ask you, since we've had you on the show, how much money have you been able to raise so far? Yeah, I've gotten about eight thousand eighty five hundred dollars. I'd need to check my most recent figures. But Thanks to the Leguminati, they've covered about half of that, and it's been able to finance me hiring a firm out of Columbia to do a lot of phone banking and target 5,000 voters. That is more than half of what I need to win my race. Oh, my gosh, that's so rad. Thank you, Leguminati. Yes, and uh, you. where uh, bef- before we kick into this good news here uh, today, can you just remind people one more time where they can go to help out if they if they want? Yeah, uh, at Duncan for SC on Twitter is the quickest way, uh, but I've also added DuncanForSC.com, and that's F-O-R-S-C. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right, I'm going to kick us off with a submission. By the way, if you have any good news, corrections, confessions, you want to play What the Mutt, Share the Swear, you want to just send me Halloween photos, because it's almost Halloween again. I've been saying it for a year, but it's my favorite time of the year. Holiday, Thanksgiving photos, Halloween photos, anything you have, send it to us. Any Q4 pictures at dailybeanspod.com. Click on contact. First up from Sarah. No pronouns given. Sarah says, quick correction. The first thing that crossed my mind when I wake up, one, coffee, and two, your podcast. Couldn't live without them, and I miss you terribly on the weekends. Oh, thank you. Just wanted to say, I noticed your reference to Kathy Griffin as being imitable, but I meant inimitable. If there's a human out there incapable of being imitated, it's got to be Kathy Griffin. Anyway, I also think there can be no imitation when it comes to you and the Daily Beans. Thanks for all you do for us, Sarah. Now, I did say inimitable. I might have 
smushed it together, but I, I would never call Kathy imitable. I wonder if Sarah listens at 1.5x or something. I know I do. <laughs> it could be. But sometimes I say, uh, you know, and maybe the in sounded like a uh and then imitable. But you are correct. Either way, if I did it wrong, that would be wrong. She is inimitable. All right. Uh, who do we have next, Dan? All right. So I've got an anonymous she, her. Good news. Do you remember a few months ago, y'all featured a sweet orange and white baby girl from Central Texas looking for a forever home after having kittens? Well, thanks to your team, I was able to get in contact with her foster mom and adopt her. I'd like to introduce you to Cheryl and her big brother, Sterling. This girl is so sweet and so friendly and the loudest purr imaginable. It was love at first sight. Her brother took some time getting used to her and is honestly still a bit grumpy about it. <laughs> but now they play chase and they play and chase each other all around the house. And she even adopted his vocalizations, specifically his chase me, chase me coup. Thank you so much for everything y'all do to keep us sane and informed and for helping to complete our little family. Oh, that's such good news. And look at the babies. And those big eyes, those are just like, you have to be my person. And I tell you, this this first orange and white looks like a skinny version of Jorts the Cat. (laughs) So adorable. Yeah, big pupils are, I call them softy eyes. Um, That just means they love you. And uh, the cat tree with the two of them. Congratulations. Oh, I'm so happy about this. I'm going to grab the next two because they're both uh, relatively short. So first up from Tim, he and him. Greetings from Talmadge, ladies of the musical fruit. Talmadge is my hometown, by the way. I was born in Akron Regional and I lived near Talmadge Circle in Willow Springs Estates. I went to Monroe Elementary. Okay, greetings from Talmadge. I did a thing on the 16th and drove up to Berea and adopted this little lady. Her name is Missy, and she's a very good dog. We haven't done DNA testing, so we don't know what she's made of for what the mutt, but she sure is cute, though. Oh, my gosh, she's adorable. She's like this little white dog with an orange hat and an orange cape, and she's got a little black bandit mask and like a little dark markings around her muzzle, and she is adorable. That second photo looks like she's been hitting that hand sanitizer in the back, though. She's a little stoned out. (laughs) So cute. And next up from Celia. Hello to the Leguminati leadership. While on a paddling expedition in very northern British Columbia, I met a simpatico paddler. We discovered that we're both regular listeners of the Daily Beans. Shout out to Lex. Another reason to like you. Attached are two pics of our last early morning paddle. Beautiful, isn't it? I'd never seen a rainbow in the mist before, and the stillness and peace of the place is a mental health moment I'll return to often. Thanks again for distilling the news for us and keeping steely eyes on the prize. I hope, I hope, I hope that democracy is returning to robust health after its near brush with fascism. As pod pet tax, I attach my two most recent pound cats. Lily has a congenital eye condition for which she'll be seeing a feline ophthalmologist, seriously. And Cien, uh, C-I-E-N, is, well, you'll find her. Both are darlings, and I hadn't intend to adopt, but the universe had other ideas, and I'm the winner. Oh my God, look at that paddling. <gasps> yeah, I cannot get on a canoe or go out onto a lake or anything like that. I'm just too scared of open water like that. Oh, it's so, so beautiful. I remember when we did the Maine Comedy Festival up in Bethel, Maine. There's so many lakes up there. We went out uh, 
We went out paddling a little bit. Look at that rainbow. It's so beautiful. And then let's see the kitties. Hello. Oh, yep. I see the other one oh, yeah. <laughs> behind the TV. Got his uh, so... cat warmer there. Uh, instead of yep. a laptop, he's got a TV to keep him warm. <laughs> yep. Yep. And uh, congrats on being the winner in the universe lottery with these two. Definitely. All right. From Justin, he, him. Hello, fellow Beans listeners. Recently, my favorite subject was brought up in the good news, so I thought I'd contribute. I have been married uh, 16 years to the love of my life, and I just wanted to share some things I do for her. Every August, I choose one thing I love about her, and I post it on Facebook once a day. It's not as easy as it sounds, especially if you're really forgetful and might miss a day here or there. They range from really funny to really sweet, but it's really fun and a great challenge. I recommend it to any fellow listeners. I've attached a picture of us this summer on vacation and a picture of our German chow Owen for pet tax. <laughs> German chow. Oh, and oh, look at this beautiful picture. By the way, yeah. is that like Hawaii? Where are you? That is gorgeous with the greenery in the background and the blue sky. The mountains reminded me a little bit of Puerto Rico uh, when me and my wife went down there. It's definitely tropical. That's yeah, nice. And then... Look at that. Chow Shepherd. So adorable. And thank you for that. What a cool idea. Just pick a month every day. Say something nice on Facebook. I absolutely love it. All right. Next up from uh, Bobby. Pronouns he and him. Earlier this month, I was laid off from my job, but I got very good news today. I passed the California insurance property and casualty exam and I received my license this weekend. I am thrilled as this will open up doors to new opportunities I've been unable to submit my resume to for employment. I've included our dog, Zoe, sitting on my boyfriend's lap. And I can also share that my boyfriend is amazingly supportive as I start this new adventure into furthering my career. Congratulations. And that is a handsome fellow and a handsome dog. And I love the yeah. <laughs> I love the art behind him. I cannot get past that. Yeah, the dog That's is so great. Awesome. The boyfriend is great. But that artwork <laughs> with the protesting police, <laughs> amazing bitch. Revolution. Yeah. Yep. So, so cool. Thank you for that. It must be up in Portland or something. That's really, really amazing. Congrats. 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 All right. So next up from Lola Gale, no pronouns given. Oh, I know what's coming. <laughs> She's got another tabby. Yeah. She's going to tell us about it. I've been I've been following along on the, on the socials. Yeah. So this should happen. I was sitting in the dark <laughs> at 4 a.m. on Sunday morning listening to the latest Mueller She Wrote emergency pod that Allison posted over the weekend. I had it up loud because I've been working around the house. All of a sudden, I hear noises on my front porch, and I thought, oh, great, the hoodlum raccoons or possums were at it again. Nope. I opened the front door, and there was this tabby elven creature hanging from the screen of my front door. Imagine Dobby from Harry Potter, but hanging in midair like some Cirque du Soleil acrobat. All I can think is this straight kitten heard Allison's voice and was like, well, that's for me. needless to say we have a new foster named bean i'm in central texas near fort hood in case anyone wants a very loving little baby who loves the beans as much as we do not sure if it's male or female but they're the sweetest kitty ever i'm guessing at eight weeks old bitey stabby sweary wiggly opinionated sweet af loves catnip and kitten chow demands to be let back outside so independent at times plays well alone Team Tabby is not super happy, but I think they're dealing with it as best they can. At any rate, look at me. I got another Tabby. Why do they find me? 
<laughs> they're there for the beans, <laughs> the tabby beans. Look at this baby. <laughs> it's such a slunk. And this looks like a man cat face to me, by the way. So I'm going to guess that this is a, a boy because that looks like a man cat face. I could be wrong. But uh, what a sweet honey. And if you know if I lived close by, I would come and get this cat in a second. So if you if you want to just put put him on a plane, that, you know, that works too. But oh my God, this kitten is so cute. You have to let us know, Lola, whether uh, this is a male or female. I'm going to guess male. But, you know, I, I am biased toward boy kitties. So I kind of want to see man cat faces everywhere I look. But Anyhow, you let me know. And everybody, thank you for sending in your good news. If you want to send in good news, please send it to dailybeanspod.com. Just click on contact. Dana will be back in a few days. I am so excited. I hope everybody's following her social media and looking at all the pictures of her in Iceland. She's doing incredible work. And uh, I'm just so in awe of her. And I'm so excited for her to come back and be back with us on The Beans. And I believe Daniel Duncan, again, Democratic candidate for South Carolina House of Representatives in the 14th District. You have some personal good news, I hear. Yeah, I got First, I want to take a quick second shout out Magpie Thomas and Laura. Uh, Laura is one of my dedicated donors and volunteers, and I know she listens, so I wanted to give her a specific shout out. Personal good news is that I found out that one of my volunteers, who is the daughter of a former Waffle House waitress is going to ask me and my wife to be godparents to her son that's born. And uh, my wife and I were never able to have kids. So this is super important to us. We want to make sure that this kid has the best life that we can uh, help provide. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. And I hope that I hope you talk to some of the some of the constituents about that leading up to the election, because that's what this campaign is about, is providing an incredible future for for kids. And I, and I know that that, you know, is so important to you. And now it's personally important to you, especially since you haven't been able to have your own. So congratulations on that. What an incredible thing. Thank you. And one last thing for uh, folks that are listening uh, who might be around Lawrence County who are listening today. At 5.30 on the square at Palmetto Brothers, I'm going to have a meet and greet. The executive director of the state party is coming down to interview me for his show. And uh, I'll buy the first 40 people a beer. I'd love to meet any other listeners like Thomas and Laura and Magpie. First 40 people, free beer, 5.30 p.m. today. Where is it? Uh, Palmetto Brothers on the square in Lawrence. I'm assuming people who live there know what that means. Okay. Excellent. And thank you so much. And and continued luck with your candidacy. And we will talk to you again, uh, I hope, before the midterms. And thank you for reading the good news with me today. Everybody, I'll be back tomorrow on The Beans. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. And vote blue over Q. And vote for Dan Duncan, right? Absolutely. Thank you, Allison. I appreciate y'all having me back. Absolutely. I've been H.E. And I've been D.D. And them's The Beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>